Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. Today, I am covering a woman from the great country of France. And can I recommend the French History Podcast? It starts in prehistoric times and has progressed through to medieval times, but also with occasional diversions to important questions like, why were so many kings named Louis? And important topics like women's secret agents of World War II. I recommend checking it out. The current series is Great Painters, and this is episode 10.7, Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun, French Portrait Painter. The major primary source for today's heroine is her own multi-volume book called Souvenir, or Memories, written when she was about 80. The modern biographies go on and on and on about what an unreliable narrator she was, often without really considering the circumstances of that book. You try writing the story of your life at age 80, and I bet you'll misremember a few dates too. Also, they persist in calling it an autobiography, the implication being that it somehow should be a tell-all, deepest confessions, darkest secrets kind of book. It's not. It's much more like a scrapbook. It highlights the things that went well, with only occasional brief mentions of sorrows. It is truly a collection of memories, with heavy emphasis on how great things were in the good old days before the country went to the dogs. Again, not an uncommon perspective from older people, and not necessarily a good reflection of what she would have said if she'd written it decades earlier. The result is that the words shallow and narcissistic get thrown around a lot with regard to Elizabeth. I have more sympathy, possibly because I live in the social media age. Shallow narcissism is what it's all about. It doesn't mean a person doesn't have depth and interest in others, only that the format doesn't highlight that. Anyway, my goal here is to show an Elizabeth who at least had the possibility of complexity, and you can let me know in the comments how well I do. Elizabeth was born on April 16, 1755. Her father was a minor portrait artist and her mother was a hairdresser. She was definitely not a member of the 1%. Despite not being rich, Elizabeth was sent to a wet nurse for the first five years of her life, and then to a convent for the next five. This was completely standard good parenting at the time. At the convent, a young Elizabeth sketched on every available surface, including the walls, and got in trouble for it. Formal art training was not really in the cards for any girl, but she had family connections to the community of artists, and a father who taught her on visits home. Unfortunately, her father died when she was about 12. Her mother remarried to a jeweler with a shop in an elegant part of town. Elizabeth never quite reconciled herself to this second marriage, but the truth is it helped her tremendously. She was now living near the 1%. They noticed her and her talent. Even as a teenager, Elizabeth was taking commissions as a portrait artist, and they are charming. You can see her genius even in one of the earliest. She painted her younger brother Etienne with his school books, looking back over his shoulder as if saying goodbye while heading off for the day. He looks fresh and pleasant, like a teenager you'd actually want to know. This painting, by the way, is in the St. Louis Art Museum, which is totally accessible for some of my local listeners. That spontaneity and unguardedness was a feature of Elizabeth's style, and it was a huge hit with society ladies and salon hosts, all of whom recommended her to other society ladies and salon hosts, all the way up the social food change to the very top society lady France had to offer, Marie Antoinette, the queen. It is hard to get any more 1% than that. 
1778, Elizabeth was the Queen's official artist, and over the next six years, she would paint the Queen no fewer than 30 times. In 1783, Elizabeth was admitted to the exclusive Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, and she was earning a very good income, charging far more for her work than her father could ever have dreamed of. She was also married with a child, the traditional markers of female success. So that is the glittering world of beauty and grace that Elizabeth would have loved you to believe is all that is going on. But as in France itself, there was a lot of unrest going on just below the facade. For France, the underlying reality was that the absolute monarchy just didn't fit with the Enlightenment ideals made popular by Voltaire and Rousseau. Also, France was broke. I don't just mean a little strained at the moment, I mean absolutely scraping the dark corners of the car for any loose change, flat out broke. They'd gotten here by having a terribly unequal tax structure and massive debt, a fair portion of which they had incurred by meddling in foreign affairs. And by foreign affairs, I mean a little upstart of a rebellion of British colonists in North America. Yes, thank you, France. Ingratiating yourself with the royal court was a time-tested, tried-and-true career path for artists, but unfortunately it was a little out of date by Elizabeth's time. Now it only meant that she had firmly allied herself with a deeply unpopular queen. Marie Antoinette was extravagant, but the slander against her made her ten times more so. She was also accused of adultery, lesbianism, fraud, and incest with her own son. Some of these accusations were demonstrably untrue. Others there was no evidence either for or against. But it didn't really matter. The monarchy itself was unpopular. She was just the public face of it. Marie Antoinette seriously needed a PR makeover. And in part, that was what Elizabeth was for. In a world without photography or video, Portraits were a major way for monarchs to convey whatever image they wanted to have. Elizabeth's portraits of Marie Antoinette are mostly not the stuffy, formal, look-how-imposing-I-am kind of royal portrait that had been done for centuries. Instead, she painted the queen as a mother, surrounded by her children, or as a simply-dressed woman with a rose. Possibly too simple. One of the portraits had the queen in a white muslin dress. It was meant to be natural, inspired by the flowing draperies of the classical world. The queen liked it, but detractors guffawed. The queen had been painted in her underwear. Elizabeth hastily took that portrait down. As a PR campaign, it was meant well. Let's humanize the queen and show she isn't bankrupting the country. But it didn't work. What it did do was let the queen's associates, Elizabeth among them, in for their own share of nastiness, and being a successful career woman probably didn't help. Elizabeth was accused of being a social climber, probably true. Also of granting sexual favors in order to do that climbing, probably not true, though it's hard to prove a negative, and also that she didn't actually paint those pictures, there was definitely a man somewhere doing it for her, definitely not true. But Elizabeth was, above all, practical. She wanted professional success, and that could only come from those with money and influence to pay her and promote her. Basically, the queen was worth the slander. Then there's Elizabeth's admittance to the academy. The usual method was for a painter to present several works to be judged and wait for the academy's verdict and their assigned rank. The rank of history painter was most prestigious. Portrait, landscape, and flower painters were lesser beings. I mentioned in an earlier episode that I didn't know why they should be lesser since they still look mighty impressive to me. Well, I finally know. 
the thinking was that a history painter required more knowledge and imagination than someone who merely copied from life. I'm still not convinced, but at least I know the rationale. Anyway, Elizabeth's admittance to the Academy is mired in conflicting accounts, but there is more than a hint of a suspicion that she was admitted on the king's orders, not because she had followed the usual application process. She says the Academy didn't want her because of her gender, but there were a few other women in the Academy, though none with the highest rank of history painter. There is also a hint of a suggestion that Elizabeth may have been playing a deep game. She was already known as a portrait painter, not a history painter. She could have submitted portraits for judgment like everyone else. Instead, she gets the queen to get the king to get the academy to admit her by royal decree. She is thus admitted without any rank at all, having not submitted a painting. Then she submits a painting, and is it the expected portrait which determines her rank? No, she submits Peace Bringing Back Abundance, an allegorical depiction of two women. Myth and allegory are not portraits. They count as history painting. That's top rank. Thank you very much. Boom. Like I say, the accounts conflict, and Elizabeth's souvenirs certainly do not present it as her manipulating the system, and neither do they admit that the king leaned on the academy, so we can't know for sure, but certainly something was fishy about her admittance. Then there's the marriage. Jean-Baptiste Pierre Lebrun was a neighbor and an art dealer, but Elizabeth was a long way from smitten. Here's what she says about it. So little, however, did I feel inclined to sacrifice my liberty that even on my way to the church I kept saying to myself, Shall I say yes, or shall I say no? Alas, I said yes, and in so doing exchanged present troubles for others. Not exactly a love letter, is it? Jean-Baptiste was a gambler and a womanizer, and Elizabeth bitterly resented it, but it was an effective working partnership for all that. The art dealer and the artist, they both benefited professionally. Though Jean-Baptiste's profession was another complication in her academy admittance, artists weren't supposed to be so commercial, and being an art dealer was a bar to entry even for men. There were so few women in the academy that it simply wasn't clear if a husband's profession also counted as the wife's profession. They weren't sure. Despite the difficult undercurrents, the surface might have continued swimmingly. Elizabeth presented at the Academy Salon each year, and many of her works were well-received. One worth mentioning was a self-portrait. She painted herself in a hat with a palette in her arms. What most viewers now miss is that it was an artistic allusion to a famous Peter Paul Rubens painting. He had painted a beautiful woman in a hat, and the painting was known as the woman in a straw hat. Only the hat in Rubens' painting isn't straw. Elizabeth's hat is straw. She's going one step beyond in this self-portrait, depicting herself as both the subject, a beautiful woman in a straw hat, and Rubens himself, the master creator with a paint palette, all in one package. Is that shallow or complex? She also painted herself with her daughter, not her husband. Maternal tenderness and emotional sensitivity was something she did very well. But by 1788 and 1789, tenderness and sensitivity were a long way from sufficient. The harvests were bad, and the people were starving, and French discontent boiled over. As a close associate of the Queen, Elizabeth decided to escape France. She left in a public stagecoach, dressed as a working woman with only a small amount of money. She brought her nine-year-old daughter Julie and her governess. Jean-Baptiste decided to remain behind, but he discreetly followed the stagecoach to the outskirts of Paris, 
to make sure it actually got to the outskirts of Paris. Elizabeth was 34 years old, and she was a refugee. But hardly one without resources, she made her way to Italy, where a great number of France's good and great and wealthy were congregating. These people knew her, and they still liked having their portraits painted. Indeed, Elizabeth's exile reads more like a grand tour of Europe than a forced migration. Venice, Florence, Rome, Naples, and everywhere she went she visited a lot of art collections and dropped a lot of names that sound like they were the Kardashians of their time. Few of them meant anything to me. In several of these places she was admitted to the local academies, and in Florence she was invited to contribute a self-portrait to the Uffizi Gallery, which is still there. She used the opportunity to make her political loyalties clear. She painted herself painting, and the canvas in front of her has the chalk outline of Marie Antoinette. Having crisscrossed Italy, Elizabeth moved on to Austria and the court in Vienna, where she was just as successful. But again, she could not completely dodge reality. It was in Vienna that she heard Marie Antoinette had been sent to the guillotine. Going home was neither safe nor legal. She was on the list of émigrés, meaning people who had fled because of the revolution, enemies of the new republic, one and all. Back at home, Jean-Baptiste was briefly imprisoned. He also divorced Elizabeth on grounds of desertion. Judging by later events, it wasn't acrimonious. Or rather, Elizabeth was plenty acrimonious, but not about the divorce. That made perfect sense. If they were divorced and he took all the local property, then it wasn't owned by an émigré, was it? It couldn't be seized by the state. The exes remained in touch, and Jean-Baptiste did risk his life in a couple of attempts to exonerate her. He claimed she didn't flee France. She would never do that. She loved France. She had gone to Italy purely to further her artistic education. The assembly didn't believe him. In 1795, Elizabeth decided she was done with Austria and moved to Russia to the court of Catherine the Great. When summoned to meet the empress, Elizabeth was horrified to have no proper court dress ready to wear. But Catherine was gracious and didn't comment on it. What Elizabeth probably didn't know was that Catherine had good reason to be kind about it. The same thing had happened to her when she first came to the Russian court. However, Elizabeth's stay in Russia was not the unqualified success Elizabeth was hoping for. She painted Catherine's granddaughters in the simple unadorned dresses she had been championing since the early days of her career. Catherine was scandalized. Short sleeves? Really? Elizabeth says she hastily painted sleeves on, ruining the effect in her opinion, but keeping the monarch happy was the entire essence of her business strategy. Modern x-rays of that painting don't show any significant repainting, so possibly she actually redid the whole thing and trashed the original? She never got a chance to paint the Empress herself because Catherine died in 1796. Elizabeth also had more personal issues. Her daughter Julie had been with her every step of this wandering migration. Elizabeth had always hired tutors to give her a good, solid education, of a kind much better than she herself had received while stuffed in a convent. Now Julie was an adult and in love. Elizabeth looked over the man in question and said, Nope, I don't think so. But Julie did not take it well. She got so depressed she fell ill, at which point Elizabeth said, Okay, fine. She provided a significant dowry and trousseau because Jean-Baptiste certainly wasn't in a position to provide anything. In the end, Elizabeth was proved right. The man was a loser, and the marriage broke down pretty quickly. But Elizabeth's relationship with Julie never recovered, and according to more than one commenter, this is because Elizabeth was a bad mother. 
shallow and narcissistic remember plus jealous demanding and possessive even though she valued her career over her daughter and now i'm going to go on a little rant so skip forward if you're not in a ranting mood why is there an assumption that if a child has problems then it must be because mom did motherhood wrong why isn't there any recognition that julie was her own independent person fully capable of ruining her life entirely on her own or if we need to find a parent to blame how about we blame the one who was absentee for 12 years and did not pay child support elizabeth made her maternal mistakes i am sure but overall she was pretty dedicated she was basically a single working mother who most unusually for her time actually earned enough to pay for quality child care that isn't doing motherhood wrong as for having an opinion on julie's choice of men that isn't doing motherhood wrong either in the modern world you may have opinions about your child's partners in fact i'm sure you do but you know you're supposed to keep your mouth shut but elizabeth was not in the modern world trying to protect your daughter from a bad match was entirely standard practice for most of history that was being a good mother what probably didn't change between then and now is that it's hard for a child to admit that her mother was right all along to assume that elizabeth was a bad mother and that's why julie made bad decisions is really just another form of sexism it devalues them both and this one is not something we can blame on a patriarchy because most of these biographers are women this is something we women do to each other enough with the mom guilt okay all right rant over back to our regular programming elizabeth had been away from paris for a long time but she was not forgotten in 1799 255 artists signed a petition to allow her to come home and in 1800 it was granted documents and travel delayed her but on january 18 1802 she was joyfully received by her extended family in paris she moved right back in with her ex-husband just as though the divorce had never happened he even decorated the house with flowers for her which sounds sweet except that he didn't actually have the cash to pay for them so could she please pick up the tab thanks so much darling glad to have you back elizabeth was very interested in how much paris had changed especially the louvre art museum which had been substantially enhanced by napoleon's ransacking of italy war is very effective that way unfortunately she was so absorbed that she failed to notice closing time and got herself locked in she also took commissions but her political loyalties were all too clear she bitterly resented painting napoleon's sister who was unreliable in showing up for sittings and changed her hair and clothes each time until elizabeth said quite loudly i have painted real princesses who never worried me and never made me wait you have to wonder if it was entirely coincidental that she left town again soon afterwards she had already jogged over to england for two months that turned into two years now she headed to switzerland the truth is she didn't like staying put and everywhere she went her talent was in demand over her long life she painted an enormous number of paintings mostly portraits but also some landscapes and the occasional mythological subject she died march thirtieth eighteen forty two the judgment of subsequent generations has largely been to denigrate elizabeth her work is too simple to be serious art her paintings of smiling motherhood are too complacent to be feminist her adoration of monarchy is too politically incorrect to be tolerated and let's not forget the narcissism charge her portraits look so conventionally appealing to us now that it's difficult to remember that revering natural motherhood actually was a social statement at the time remember that elizabeth herself was sent away from her family for her first eleven years as was common in the eighteenth century childhood was just a messy noisy phase of life to get through 
It was the revolutionary Jean-Jacques Rousseau who had celebrated childhood and encouraged women to nurse their own children. Elizabeth admired him despite his anti-monarchist views. He also disliked self-made women like herself. Biographers have chosen to see Elizabeth's admiration of Rousseau as her self-contradiction rather than as her capacity for complexity. Likewise, her emphasis on natural, comfortable clothes and poses seems obvious to us, but remember they scandalized the French public and Catherine the Great. She was pushing the edge in some ways. And finally, I think it's hard that the very accessibility of her paintings should be held as proof that she was shallow and not serious. There's nothing trivial about the ability to see beauty in the world and convey it to others. You can tell me in the comments or on social media if you also think Elizabeth deserves more credit than she gets. My major source for today is Angelica Gooden's biography, The Sweetness of Life. You really should check out the website herhalfofhistory.com to see Elizabeth's work yourself, plus the transcript and other sources and a link to Patreon. You can find me on Twitter at her underscore half or on Facebook and Instagram as her half of history. Reviews and stars and recommendations are welcome. If you need still more of my narcissistic voice, check out the History Detective podcast where I did a guest interview that went live this past week. Next week, I do something new for me. I've got a guest podcaster coming to tell you about another portrait painter, Amalia Kusner. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>